Hello and welcome to Bear Season 2020, wherein the World Health Organization has just named coronavirus a global pandemic. You've got emergency rate cuts everywhere from the Fed to the BOE and soon enough probably the rest of Europe of the ECB and a crazy amount of money printing in China happening as well. But anyways, today I'll be giving you my two cents on how the Fed is lying to you about the US economy and more importantly, I want to focus on why they're lying to you. You specifically. So first of all, I'm going to give a breakdown of the Fed's most recent actions alongside the kind of press release, the statement, and the Q&A session from the FOMC's latest meeting, wherein, I don't know, I, I feel like Jay Powell really employed so much doublethink and Fed speak that I really thought I was reading another Orwellian novel. Uh, anyway, so what happened is that the Fed uh, conducted an emergency unscheduled uh, meeting and create, uh, not created, sorry, made an emergency rate cut of 50 basis points. The last time we saw this was in 2008, so that's not a great reference point. Uh, but more importantly, let's get into the conference and what's, what was said, right? So <clears throat> the press release um, that they, the FOMC released started with the following statement. And I quote, the fundamentals of the US economy remain strong. End quote. Right, so I'd really like to ask Jay Powell specifically which fundamentals he's referring to and really to what extent strong, a very qualitative, qualitative metric, is capable of quantifying an entire economy, right? But specifically, I want to focus on the phrase uh, remain strong, right? I want to ask remained from what time period? Since when? Last year, maybe following the three separate rate cuts amounting to 75 basis points? That doesn't seem like the economy was that strong if you're employing 75 basis points worth of rate cuts and crazy repo, repo operations, right? And if it has remained strong, and it is strong, supposedly, then what is the reason for an emergency, an unscheduled 50 basis point cut with the committee? Actually, yeah, committee, they had they made a, the unanimous decision to do so, right? So aren't, may, aren't uh, interest rates meant to slowly rise as the economy is strong? In theory, if an economy is strong, monetary conditions really shouldn't be easing. Monetary conditions ease if you want to support business, if there is not enough cash uh, in the system, if you know you want to spur investment and consumption. But clearly, this was not the case for the second half of 2019, and even more so for the first quarter of 2020. Right? There's been a lot of these rate cuts. The economy hasn't seemed as strong as these guys tell you. Uh, that it is no matter how many times they can t they can tell you that it's strong all the time. Even the Hong Kong, uh, the finance minister of Hong Kong, uh, when he was speaking of Bloomberg, he gave an interview. I had a quick look at it. Uh, he really predicted, even though he wasn't sure about where his economy is going to go, he really predicted a strong V-shaped recovery. As if that means anything. That doesn't mean anything. It's stupid. Like, what else are you ex going to expect them to say? Of course, they're going to say it's strong. Of course, they're going to give you a bright, never doom and gloom picture. Anyways, the, the stench of doublethink really does permeate the uh, Fed's emergency rate cut. Uh, that Again, like I said, the magnitude of which was actually last seen in the 2008 Great Recession. Um, anyways, I'll now move on to an extract from Jay Powell's Q&A session, wherein he was asked about the relevance of a rate cut, which is a demand-side policy, to a supply-side problem like the virus. Right. That's if you look at my article, I actually wrote an article about this, which really sets the premise for this whole podcast because I want to expand on it. I wanted to expand on it, and so I am. Uh, but essentially, China is the world's workshop. Right. At the initial kind of uh, scare of the coronavirus, people were talking about the manufacturing supply chains, and that's what I also brought up in my art. One of my first articles on investinginintellect.com. 
I was talking about, for example, Foxconn and how their biggest iPhone manufacturer and also a lot of different electronics products that China are produced in China that supposedly then uh, get sent all around the world. Well, what's going to happen if China doesn't send them all around the world because no one's moving around in there and everyone is quarantined? Uh, right, so you had that, but also recently I was researching more on the topic and I found out that China is actually a very huge exporter of food, right? Because let's say with iPhones, with machinery, you can keep those in your inventory for a while. So you can run on your stockpiles as Apple did, for example, and keep selling them without receiving any iPhones for like a month, for example, right? But food and perishables, you can't. 30% of all exported vegetables are exported by China. They're the biggest vegetable exporter. Uh, again, China is the biggest, the dominant exporter in fish, shrimps, and uh, prawns, and crustaceans, or crustaceans, I don't know how you pronounce it, but fish and other seafood. 11% of that is exported by China. They account for 11% of all exports of that. 6% of exported coffee, tea, and spices. They're the third largest exporter of that and 4% of all exported fruits and nuts. They're the seventh largest in the world, right? So you can't stockpile fresh fruit, vegetables, fish. Food is nutrition, right? And the virus has threatened China's ability to maintain the food exports, lay, laying over into that kind of supply issue of the supply chains, right? So monetary policies, interest rate cuts, they're demand side policies. So a reporter asked, uh, <clears throat> sorry, asked Jay Powell that specific question, and this was his response, and I quote, <clears throat> we do recognize that a rate cut will not reduce the rate of infection. It won't fix a broken supply chain. We get that. We don't think we have all the answers, but we do believe that our action will provide a meaningful boost to the economy, end quote. Great, so if it's not fixing the heart of the problem, and that is the supply chain, that is the rate of infection, then what is our monetary policy actually fixing? What is it actually offsetting? What is the point, right? That, that's that's really the, the crux, the, the, the question that I then pose after my article, wherein I look at the facts, I look at the figures, I look at the theory, wherein mon monetary policy is not suited, according to the Federal Reserve of Boston, it's not suited to the offsetting food prices, inflation and food prices, or... The, the, these other forces, the, the, these other things which you can't just manipulate using, you know, the, the supply chains, the supply chains, really, you, you can't manipulate that with monetary policy, you can't manipulate that with, or manipulate change effect that effectively with monetary policy, right? So, so, so what's the point of the emergency rate cut as seen in the US and the UK now? What is the point? What is actually happening, right? Is it to provide a meaningful boost to our strong economy? Why? I thought our economy was strong. And a meaningful boost, like, great, thanks. I, I really thought that it was going to be completely meaningless. You know, all this man does is add words to empty text to make it sound more important and make it sound like it means something to the general public. Right, so anyways, <clears throat> the, the point is that if it can't offset the supply-side shock, the empty store shelves, the higher food prices... Then what is the point behind it, right? That is the question I asked myself. That is the question I asked on the blog. Uh, that's what I've been researching for a bit, and it's it's worrying, right? But but the answer that what I think is happening is debt, uh, corporate debt, government debt, private debt. Debt cannot be paid off if money isn't flowing around an economy, if there isn't any level of economic activity to actually supplement the debt. Uh, which has been taken on board by just about every economic agent in the States, then, you know, how is that actually meant to be paid off? If no one's coming to my shop, if I'm having to purchase 
uh, if, if my costs of production are increasing because exports from China are in, you know, increasing in cost or that there's fewer of them, you know, same idea, then how am I meant to pay off my debts, right? So interest rates, in theory, what they do, lower interest rates, increase uh, borrowing since it's cheaper. So it's cheaper for me to borrow and take on debt, right? But specifically, what kind of debt are we talking about? Um, because debt is very general, right? Corporate debt, got like whatever, I was just naming types of debt. Well, <clears throat> in 2019, uh, 50% of the US's corporate debt was rated triple B, right? So what does that mean? That's the minimal level above junk bonds. This means that literally, <clears throat> literally half of the corporate debt in the United States of America is rated next to shit from huge multinationals to local SMEs, literally. And even then, I wouldn't really place too much trust in the integrity of the ratings agencies as per the you know 2008 global financial crisis wherein you know let's just say the ratings given by by these agencies sorry for different bonds and debts were a bit of their true mark basic basically they bullshitted right so <clears throat> the, the fed rate cut allows these debt-ridden firms and industries which i'll kind of go into more specifically later on uh, to finance their debts, refinance their debts, sorry. So that is essentially the practice of taking out a new loan to pay for the current one, just, you know, at a lower interest rate payment in in this example specifically, right? So that's what the government does. That's what firms do is that uh, every fiscal year or whenever the debt, you know, comes to maturity when they're not able to pay it off, they just get more debts and roll it over until next year, right? That, that It's literally the act of post just kicking it, kicking the can down the road. Anyways, the problem is that the risk doesn't disappear. The debt burden just shifts to whichever entity is wise enough to take on shit debt for a lower interest rate, right? So you need to realize that monetary easing actually does also come at the expense of lenders, savers, and people who are conservative with their money. It transfers wealth from lenders to borrowers, right? Those who owe billions and trillions in the US economy, those are the people who are gonna be better off. So you wanna ask yourself, well, who's actually the borrower in the economy? the government is a huge borrower. The, the government is a huge borrower. All they do is run fiscal deficits and then they commit uh, commit to deficit financing. Um, but anyways, you, you gotta know that for every single dollar also that has been, again, borrowed, there must be an extra dollar that has been lent out, right? So, and what people don't realize that in this situation is that this actually increases the risk in the economy. The debt burdens of these firms remains unchanged, right? They still have debt. But specifically, they might be handling this debt with even worse fundamentals uh, amidst the coronavirus, right? Less business, high cost of production, whatever. And all it happens is that it's rolled over onto debt paying lower interest, which in theory, lower interest should signal a lower risk premium. Um, so people assume risk to be less and are able to take a lower yield. But that we know that that's not the case. We know the risk is high, right? Changing consumer habits... Uh, have left people with f- fewer people going outside, literally, uh, and spending money, therefore. Inflationary pressures on food supply, as per my article, uh, other consumer goods, manufactured goods, all impacting Western supply chains, uh, which use Chinese outputs and different outputs from around the world, sorry, as their inputs. And again, like 50% triple B corporate debt, like, come on, did this, <laughs> very risky, f- 50% next to shit debt. It's ridiculous. <clears throat> Anyways, uh, let's look at specific industries because I talked about the government, uh, the corporate debt in industries. But what are we looking at specifically? What did I think of that made 
just it clicked in my mind. It, it made sense because I thought of a specific industry for which the central bank would do anything, and that is the government would do anything. Shale oil industry. It is a completely unprofitable and debt-ridden industry. With actually the oil and gas, oil and gas industry uh, as a whole has over two hundred billion US dollars worth in debt maturing over the next three to four years. And how the how the hell is it meant to be paid off if the market price of oil currently at like thirty three bucks on the Western Texas Intermediate, which it, it, it's far below their break even prices or cost of production for many firms, right? In Texas, the average I actually looked this up, right? Uh, in Texas, the average break even price per barrel of oil is around 50 bucks, ranging from 20 all the way up to 70. This means that for many firms, even when the price of oil used to be higher, when they were profitable, at least, not, maybe they weren't even profitable, but at least at a higher price of oil, they were able to cover the cost of extracting each barrel of oil and then covering at least some of their fixed costs and paying off a bit of their debt, but still having to roll stuff over. But now, especially amidst the oil price war, for a lot of these firms, it's not even worth digging up another drop of oil, right? So, so what happens? Well, they're at a standstill. They either shut down, they stop producing, they wait, they you know survive off of their reserves. I don't know, but they're not producing. They're not producing the oil that has made the U.S. a global dominant force right now and has made it over the past decade complete. I want to say completely, but to a certain degree, independent. It's one of the reasons why it's more independent from the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, Russia, and OPEC due to, again, that, that oil independence. But th if the shale oil producers are not producing, then that independence freezes. They're not a longer independent. The US cannot let go of this strategic resource. And as such, they will cut the rate by 50 basis points to allow them to take on more debt. In fact, I'm, I'm even predicting that the US government is going to start paying straight up financing this industry, maybe even some others, but this industry definitely just to keep it afloat again j just to give it more money to continue the extraction and therefore the domestic supply of oil which is crucial to not only the actual economy in that you can't run machines without energy but also in the fact that they're more isolated from the external shocks of you know stuff happening in the middle east with opec whatever that might be Anyways, uh, we'll see either, we'll de sorry, we'll definitely see many more bankruptcies in the shale industry, shale oil industry, and we'll see the survival of firms with potentially higher volume reserves, right? Those who can literally just last longer. Uh, with, uh, we're looking at also industry relative strong balance sheets and the, definitely the fewest upcoming debt maturities, right? The, those firms which over the next four years, let's say, have the least debt to be paid off, um, they'll survive the rest. Uh, the government, the central bank will let die because why would you want to pay off debt? No one likes paying off debt, right? So someone's going to be worse off. <clears throat> but anyways, I'm going to be speaking more about this in the future and uh, in, a, in a future article and also podcast as I'm really further researching the geopolitical asset and financial liability that is the shale oil industry um, to the US at least, right? <clears throat> so the airline, for example, other industries, the airline industry is also set to lose out on 100 billion US dollars uh, due to the coronavirus, uh, electrical vehicles industry is another one that I came up with, and the companies like Tesla specifically, these guys are constantly high on debt, and they're single-handedly fueled by it. I mean, you can say that, oh, Tesla had like a profitable third quarter in 2019. That doesn't mean anything. Th these guys play around with the balance sheets. The fact is, for the past 14 years, or, or like however old Tesla is, uh, it hasn't been profitable. 
It's been taking on more debt. It's been selling more equity. Elon Musk has been financing it. There has been debt in the system, whether or not there has been financing one way or another, right? So anyways, this is not a meaningful boost to the economy, right? It simply delays the day of reckoning. It allows essentially for more debt uh, refinancing, etc., etc., for these firms to, again, sustain their ineffectiveness, inefficiency, but importance to the US uh, for a longer period of time. It's essentially the continuous progress in the increasing degree of leverage present in our economy, which just keeps right on our economy, the US economy, which is just rising uh, upon further rate cuts. So rate cuts, whatever, let, let the Fed call it whatever the hell they want. In July 2019, for example, they called it like a recalibration of the interest rate. Uh, the two consecutive cuts in 2019, I think it was September and October, were then called insurance cuts. And now the most recent rate cuts called, you know, like an emergency cut uh, meant to provide a meaningful boost to the economy. But whatever these guys call it, whatever the central bank calls it, all it is, is economic Viagra. It's dead Viagra decide to keep the economy artificially hard when there is clearly evidence for clear economic dysfunction problems. And so, for example, when speaking to other students on the topic around my uni, my friends, whatever, the topic of the rate cut and the current coronavirus situation, they said, and especially with the Bank of England currently cutting their rates as well, uh, they, they suggested that it's a completely re uh, appropriate response to the problem at hand. It is meant to help business confidence, like, you know, the kind of stuff that the central bank always spews out. But let me, on the other hand, showcase to you the bigger picture, right? People keep talking about the coronavirus as the problem, the main reason as to why things are getting fucked right now. But the coronavirus is just the pin. It's the pin to the bubble of corporate, of government, of private debt. Our economies use to fuel the addiction, resembling, resembling, sorry, like a black tar heroin addicts. I don't know, they... they there's, these guys are suggesting that more and cheaper borrowing is the solution to the problem at hand without realizing that the problem is not the virus, that the problem is not the pin itself, but the bubble at which it is poking. The bubble is created by more debt. That Listen, that bubble is debt. The solution to the problem is what caused the problem in the first place, and it's exactly what's going to transform into an even bigger problem down the line. So that there's a whole lot going on. Uh, I, I really want to conclude uh, with a few remarks, and that is the caution of ever-growing corporate borrowing, government deficit financing, and the damaged supply chains that they say that they're going to heal, but they will be unsuccessful in doing so, because it's a demand-side stimulus amidst negative supply shocks. And what does that lead to? Stagflation. Stagflation, you know, each you're basically paying more for less. It's what you see in Tesco. Like, for example, when I went to Tesco, the local Tesco, my friend, you look at the shelves, that there's no pasta. There's no toilet paper. You know, there's like no, I don't remember, obviously no hand sanitizer for ages. But you see, you look at the shop, there's no discounts. There's fewer deals. You're paying, you know, you're, you're getting mixed eggs, uh, sorry, uh, medium eggs instead of large eggs, for example, that they're more present amongst the shelves. Specifically, I also want to, and this is, I don't want to call it pessimistic. However, it's sometimes not nice to hear. But specifically, I really want to bring the focus to the fact that the government and central bank, they will never let a good crisis go to waste. There is political motivation behind everything. I want to caution you guys. <clears throat> Sorry, I want to caution you guys against the increasing role of our central banks worldwide as more permanent market makers. You know, 
I don't I don't uh, believe that the Fed or the ECB buying ETFs, buying stocks soon enough instead of the gov- government debt that they've been buying is a crazy idea to suggest. You can look at Japan. It's, you know, maybe you've heard about it, maybe you haven't. People are talking about the Japanification of the US and the, um, the Eurozone you, you, because in Japan, I believe... The central bank is the largest shareholder of public companies, about 50% of them. Uh, I'm, maybe I'm not too far off the mark, but the amount of stocks, ETFs, and essentially public, uh, capital market assets that they've been buying for the past few decades is astonishing. It's crazy. They, single, they single-handedly, they're a big owner of the public markets, but it's not, it's not a public firm. This isn't like a hedge fund. This is the central bank. Right. So again, public, uh, not not public. Sorry. I want to caution you guys against the central banks worldwide as a more permanent kind of market maker, because I want to ask you the question: What would actually happen if you let the free market roam, free from money printing, low interest rates, and all the repo operations that you see in the U.S.? These repo operations. I follow some guy on Twitter, and he often um, tells he posts about the different repo operations and the money that essentially. The U.S. Central Bank, the Fed, has been giving out to these uh, banks, uh, the, the public banks. The, the, they're always oversubscribed in the U.S. This means that people, banks, sorry, they're demanding more money than the government, the central bank is printing for them. And this has been happening for months now. The, the, the central bank needs an excuse to print more money. Otherwise, you're going to get an increase. You're going to get the same repo, like market crisis, crash, whatever you want to call it, that happened uh, late last year. You're gonna, it's still happening now. It's, it's not like it's going to happen. It's still happening now. It's still a problem. It's a prevailing problem. And if the central bank doesn't find like another excuse to keep printing more money, you're going to get this happening you know, within a few months. I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to try and guess, but the idea is that it's still a problem. Right? Would you really think that we would have a strong economy if the Fed wasn't throwing out money like a spoiled brat and they weren't cutting interest rates all the time? It's not a strong economy by itself if you just keep cutting the rates. It doesn't make sense. They're using the coronavirus, again, like an excuse to print more money and fuel the crisis, the repo crisis, by kicking it down the line. That's all they're doing, right? Another point, point which I want to bring up is also the World Health Organization recently has also advised against the use of physical cash and instead using electronic payments, electronic money. And so what's interesting about that? Well, they suggest that it's to prevent the spreading of diseases. But for those of you who don't know, what more electronic cash and electronic payments allows the state to do is to actually argue for the abolishment of physical cash, right? If a lot of people are using Apple Pay, like you probably do, I definitely do, less cash, more cards then they can argue for the abolishment of it. It's like, oh, what's the point of using it? It's something that they've been working on for a while now. But specifically, in turn, this makes the central bank a complete monopoly of money, of the monetary system, with, with with everything. They will do with cash as they please, with money, right? They will control the numbers displayed on people's bank accounts, in company bank accounts, and directly, you know, handing out, like, egregious loans. But specifically, this isn't about doing good or bad because it's subjective. All of this would be happening without repercussion. The central bank chair, the politicians, I mean, they're all the same, right? This is their job. Jeff Powell's a Republican. He wants to keep his job. He wants to... These people, these, these higher up individuals, currently all they're interested in is saving face. 
they want to keep the system afloat long enough to not become the reason, the scapegoat, for who ended the history's longest bull run. It's important to realize that their payday and recognition, fame, their legacy comes at the expense of the free market.